from the base of your neck to the small of your back is uh, 18 inches of something utterly vital to your survival and thriving, and it's called your spinal cord. And um, you have not thought about it at all today, I'm fairly sure. And that's a good thing, because you don't have to. But without it, you didn't feel a thing in your extremities today. That's, it's part of its responsibility. And uh, you will not digest anything. You will not take another breath. Your temperature will not be regulated without what is between the base of your neck and the small of your back. And you're not going to move anything. You're not going to sit there. You're not going to stand. You're not going to go play Frisbee, whatever it is you do today, without what's going on in your spinal cord. The spinal cord is of a particular um, fascination for me because I broke my back 25 years ago, as you heard me tell the story, uh, maybe last fall. But after I broke it, I, I actually wrote a paper in college about spinal cord injuries because obviously it had a certain appeal to me at that point. And I learned something rather fascinating, if not ironic, about your spinal cord. When it is ruptured, severed, or in any way compromised, certain chemicals are released that mix with other chemicals in your body, and that actually contributes to the demise of your spinal cord. What is inherent to your system, which allows you to be mobile and feel things and, and just to survive, but when those things are contained where they are supposed to be, it is your vitality, it is your flourishing. But when they get out of the system, when there is a rupture to the system, it actually contributes to its own destruction. It's awful. And yet, fascinating, right? And as I've been thinking about what we're studying in the passages we are this week, that is a perfect metaphor. Because when it comes to our relationships, our relationships are in large part the substance of our vitality. It is not too much to say that you are your relationships. What they, what they do in you, what they draw out from you, that is in large part kind of what helps you live and rejoice and have our being and, and why, the, why the church is this wondrous thing and can be also this very tragic place. But your relationships are everything in a lot of ways. And that's why we read the passage from Ecclesiastes. It's two are better than one. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. Our relationships mean so much to us. And yet in the same way as our spinal cord, when those relationships are threatened or ruptured, there are very natural impulses that are liberated that contribute to the demise of the relationship if they go unchecked. That there are parts of what make a relationship a relationship without which there is no relationship, like vulnerability, like trust, like respect. Those things that comprise what a relationship is, if ever the relationship is threatened, there are parts of the relationship inherent to it that contribute to its own demise. And wisdom accounts for those impulses. If you're not aware of those impulses that will be naturally liberated when a relationship is threatened, that relationship will die. And wisdom both accounts for it and offers a different way forward that an alternative path might be charted for us. We are looking this week, trying to answer one question. How in the Lord can you be for someone when you're against them? How in the Lord can you be for someone when you feel like you're against them or you feel like they're against you? 
we're going to look at three natural impulses that get liberated when a relationship is threatened that we have to account for and have to override. And those three impulses have everything to do with a silence that makes things worse, a speaking that makes things worse, and an acting that makes things worse. A silence, a speaking, and an acting. You're going to hear three kinds of personages in these passages. A neighbor, an enemy, and a friend. And while the each proverb will have its own context, I think we would all agree that there are times where a neighbor may sometimes become a friend or in time become an enemy. And sometimes what we start out as a friend becomes an enemy and what starts out as an enemy becomes a friend. They all go together. And I think we'll all see how they do. How can you be for someone you're against? Let's find out from the Proverbs for some wisdom. If you're able to stand, would you stand as we read? Proverbs starting in chapter 10, verse 18. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. And whoever utters slander is a fool. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause. Do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he's done. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself. And do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you. And your ill repute have no end. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you'll heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is the unequivocal word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When it comes to a relationship that is threatened, or that is ruptured, there is something, first of all, that will make things worse if indulged. And that first thing is a certain form of silence. Chapter 10, verse 18 puts that silence rather starkly when it says, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Now, every one of these Proverbs, every one of the principles imagines a certain context in which it applies. So you have to sort of imagine that context it can show up in any number of ways, but if you can imagine a scenario where you have an issue with someone or there is a pattern of behavior, some sort of egregious thing that is frustrating, maybe even a violation of trust, and that's there, and you are hurt by it, you are bewildered at their actions, you feel uncomfortable around them for whatever number of reasons, and what do you do? What do you do in a situation like that? One option is to do absolutely nothing, to remain quiet, to, to seethe, but, you know, inwardly, you know, grind your teeth, squint your eyes, but that's it. 
pretend like it's nothing, be cordial around them, but just as they say, stuff it. If you do that, if your animosity is concealed, do you know what this passage is saying you are? It is saying that you're a liar. Ah, what? You're concealing something that ought to be liberated in some form or fashion, and if you don't bring it out, that makes you what? It makes you a liar, a bald-faced liar. I told you, unequivocal, cut to the chase. Sorry, here it comes. And you may say to yourself, look, man, back off. I don't like conflict. Or you can just say, I don't like hurt people's feelings. But the truth is, now you're lying to yourself because it's not about that you don't like conflict. It's not that you don't like hurting other people's feelings. It's that you don't like not feeling liked. And that's why you don't say a word. Seniors, you're graduating. You know what? The sooner that you learn a new habit, if that's your habit, man, it will serve you. And there's no place like college in which you get an opportunity to practice this. Your roommates. Okay. What happens? You lie by an unvoiced seething that will degrade the relationship that you have with someone if you let it go there. Or to be honest, the way it really works in life, you can be angry for a while and then the emotion will kind of dissipate and you'll think, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm done with that. And yet... Something else happens in the relationship and boom, it's back. It's like Howley's Comet. But it comes more than every 76 years. It comes often and because you haven't talked about it, it will be back. How do I know that? Because I've been married. <laughs> now, um, for those of you that you know, know my wife or me a little bit, even after eight months, I'll let you guess which one of us is more likely to share their heart. <laughs> guess what? It's not me, right? But in moments like that, like when we're, there's something up, she'll look at me and she'll go, what is it? And I'll say nothing. And then she'll say, no, no, what is it? And I'll say nothing. And then she'll say, what is it? And you'll say, okay, it's something. Because she knows I'm lying. Because she knows I need to bring it out. Because she knows if it doesn't come out, it's degrading the relationship. And you and I can do that. I do that. You will do that. So what's the alternative? Where do we go with it? You listen to what it says in 27, 5, and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. All right, that's vivid. What's going on there? It's a contrast. It's contrasting a silence that you think is love with a very forthright word that actually is love. It is contrasting a silence that you, that you think is a show of your faithfulness and loyalty to them with a really pointed word that actually is a demonstration of faithfulness, unequivocally. That proverb, it's talking about flattery, which is voiced, right? But flattery, folks, is just another form of silence of what really needs to be said. And therefore, all it is is trying to shore up their approval of you. And that's a lie. It still applies there. The alternative to that silence that makes things worse is a word in a proper season spoken in a certain way that to, to borrow a phrase from another author is maybe a painful word, but which is not a harmful word. There are moments in which you must bring up a painful thing, even though it is not harmful to them. And believe me, I know that it's, it's difficult to know the difference between those two things. But not every painful word is harmful. And not every painful word you should interpret as harmful because all of us have been through experiences where somebody said something to us that hurt, but that needed to be said. And when they did that, it was because they had concern for the relationship we were in with them. If you don't go there, you're making things worse. The silence makes things worse. 
Therefore, I ask you sort of rhetorically, who are you lying to right now by saying nothing? Who needs your love, not with your flattery, but with some form of a painful but not harmful word? Only God and you know. But there is a form of silence that will not help. It will secrete into the system and degrade what you have between each other. I know I've done it. But I think you also know that for as many times as there is a silence that can make things worse, there are a whole lot of other ways in which there are kinds of speaking that makes things worse. And the Proverbs lists several. Silence, as I said, is a subtle form of cowardice. But there's one form of speaking that is guilty of the same vice, and it comes up there in chapter 25. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself. Do not reveal another secret, lest he who hears you bring some shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. You've been here before. You've done this before. There is some issue, some thing that's happened, somebody on your on your block, in your neighborhood, uh, in your apartment complex, uh, somebody that lives one cube over in your workplace, whatever it might be, something that they're doing that you don't understand and it's getting your goat, it's a, it's a burr in your saddle, what do you do? You go to their supervisor. What? Or if it's on your block, like uh, his vapor light behind his backyard starts flickering on the half hour at 2 a.m. for the rest of the night. And what do you do? You call the cops. Why? Why would you do that? Well, if I bring in the authorities, that'll nip it in the bud, won't it? Yeah, but what does that reveal about that move? Maybe two things. One, you're not courageous enough to look a person in the eye when you have an issue with them. Or secondly, you don't have enough respect for them to think that they'll actually maybe make a change if you brought to them the concern that you had. And that when you go to the authorities and they find out what's really the problem and then the authorities come and explain to you, here's why the vapor light was going off. It's the electrical systems problem, not the homeowner. Now who looks like a fool? It's you. It's me. The kind of language, the kind of speaking that does more harm than good that makes things worse is this thing called escalation without some sort of personal inquiry. It's the speaking that makes things worse. That's one kind of speaking that makes things worse. The second is, uh, is very much like it, and it, you find it in twenty four twenty eight. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause. Do not deceive with your lips. Uh, you're immediately probably thinking of a courtroom scene, right? Bearing false witness. In legal terms, we're talking about perjuring yourself, where you will say something against someone else that is not true, to discredit them or to cast them in a bad light. We talked about escalation just now. Now we're talking about the word defamation. You are speaking something against them that is not true. And it is a form of speaking that makes things worse. And the reason it happens a lot of the times is because when you have been harmed by someone, when you have been hurt by them, what happens? You get defensive. And in that defensive posture, you are tempted to say some things and not say other things. There are fears that get bubbled up. There are, there are longings that you have. There are loyalties that you have. And in, in that sort of emotional stew, all of us want to underscore some facts, but leave out other facts. The problem is, as they say, you're entitled to your own perspective, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And when you leave some out, 
you may be acting in a defamatory way. When we are hurt, when we are offended, we are tempted to only tell part of the truth. But in your partial truth-telling, you're making things worse. So there's escalation and there's defamation. And both of them secrete stuff that kills the system. There's a, a third kind of speaking that's dangerous, that, that kind of centers around two words that, that need a little unpacking, and they both come from chapter 11. And they go like this. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Two words. Belittling. Slandering. And at first, those words sound just like what I've just been talking about. Defamation. Spreading a false word about someone to discredit them. And yet, and the English word slander means just that. A, a false accusation or, or a distorted accusation in order to, to create a perception of somebody that you're telling somebody else. But if you, if you press into the Hebrew there a little bit, the words that they're referring to are, are a little bit more generic. They refer to a sort of a whispering campaign that is the spreading of a bad report. Now, when the spies go from Israel to the promised land, they scope it out. They say, oh, dear, this is not a lot of good real estate right now. I think we should look elsewhere. They come back to Israel, and what is it they give them? They give Israel a, quote, bad report. It's the same word for slander here, which means, therefore, that the idea that's being um, spoken of here is, is the idea of spreading a bad report that may be true. That you can tell a right word, a, an accurate word, a precise word, and yet it still be a problem. And where then is the issue? Um, where, when does slander really become slander according to this passage? It all comes down to intent. The word there in verse 13, who goes about slandering. That, that, is, the, that is the practice that we all like to call gossip where we like to sort of spread it all around. We like to get it out there. Look, um, uh, journalism as an industry would collapse under its own weight if it were suddenly told you are no longer allowed to spread bad reports about people. They would make no more money. They would collapse. But the only reason they flourish in that practice is because we like hearing that stuff. Because at least for that moment, we no longer have to think about our own stuff while instead focusing on somebody else's stuff. Or we think to ourselves, I can't believe they would ever do something like that. When we know in our own hearts, given another set of circumstances, we might be just as prone to the same error too. That's why James, in the book of James, when he speaks of the word slander in his letter, he says, humble yourselves. Because he knows we're all capable of taking delight in sharing a bad report about somebody else or because we think that we are incapable of committing the same error. Is there ever a time in which you would want to share a bad report about somebody else? Yes, if it's out to protect someone. Yes, if it's about to explain a course of action. There are moments in which that sharing of a report is proper but every time you, have, you are in that position, you are always having to ask yourself, what's the real purpose here? What's the real good in it? For whose sake is it being shared? 
Because if you're not asking and answering yourself that question, then you are committing something that contributes to the demise of the relationship. And that is its danger. Escalation, defamation, slander. All of those things, just like cerebrospinal fluid outside of its conduit creates an issue, those things, those forms of speaking are a problem. And that's why the alternative in moments like that is really simple. To everything there is a season. For every purpose under heaven, to every season there is a time to speak and a time to be silent. And wisdom is knowing the difference. There's a kind of silence that's a natural impulse that has to be overridden. There's a speaking that has to be overridden. But finally, there's also a form of acting. And we'll pick it up there in chapter 24 with a running start from a verse you've already heard. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause. Do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Retribution. First impulse. When we have been wronged, when we have been offended, when we have been harmed, is to do what? To, to return the favor. To, to hit back, to to hurt back, to, to bring harm. And, and the fact is this, nobody taught you how to do that. Students, um, in the nursery, if somebody hurt you, you didn't have to be told, hey, you should hurt him back. You just did it because you thought that was the only way to defend yourself. Um, you didn't think about it in these terms, but you thought that was the only way to save face. I will not be shown that way. You will not treat me like that. And the problem was we we cultivate that habit and then we never let it go and the proverbialist is here saying when you do that when you meet harm with harm you are escalating you are exacerbating the problem and if you ever want to dream of having that relationship healed again then what has to be in view is something else not retribution not recrimination that's why it says do not so what's the alternative what do you do when somebody has stirred it up in you? What do you do with a neighbor or a friend who in any given moment may feel like an enemy to you? The text is rather radical. And you've heard it before and on more than one verse in more than one testament. But when it says in chapter 25, it says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you'll heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. What's the sum and substance of that instruction, that rather counterintuitive instruction? Do them good. Seek their welfare in some way. Now, it's not about pretending that they're not at odds with you. It's not pretending that the issue that may be between you is untrue or un insignificant. It is only saying this, seek their good. Don't pretend you're not at odds. But rather than indulge the impulse to retaliate, Look for ways in which you might show them respect. And that will do something in them, this proverb is saying. They will look at you like you have two heads. And perhaps they will begin to wonder if their animosity is worth it. It will have potentially that effect. And, and you know, kids, I know you're listening to that and you're going, who, who does that? Why would you do that? What good will it do? it may come, help them come to the conclusion that you're not quite the enemy that they thought you were. And you might actually talk. 
But in a situation like that where, where you are at odds with somebody, there may come a point in which they are shown to be in the wrong and they know it. Where they have seen themselves for what they've done and they've recognized their error. And, and what is to be done in a moment like that where you discover that, yeah, you know, you, you were absolutely wrong. What does it say? Uh, listen one more time to what it says in 2417. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. What does that mean? If you win, if you're right, you may be right, they may be crazy. But don't throw a party. Don't celebrate their downfall. Don't show them that I told you so. You almost mourn for what they fought for and lost for. If you'll read the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, he writes about the day that the South signed the letter of surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in April of 1865. The two armies are there outside the courthouse. The two generals, Lee and Grant, come out to the front porch after the surrender has been signed. And with a wild whoop, the Union soldiers start to scream in revelry. And what does Grant do? He tells them to be quiet. He says, this is not a day for rejoicing over an enemy. And in his memoir, you can read his own words. He says, as abhorrent as the cause for which the South fought. On that day, they were still his countrymen. And he would not rejoice at their downfall, even if he was glad that this war had come to the conclusion that the North fought for. That is a picture of what 2417 is trying to imagine. And that is a picture of what it's like in any given relationship not to rejoice in saying to somebody, I told you so. There's a silence that hurts, a speaking that hurts, and an acting that hurts. And they all have to be replaced by something else. Which leaves us in the last question. How do you do that? How is it done? Because if we are honest with ourselves, no matter how sound that instruction sounds, no matter how wise it may come off to us here in the comfortable room that we're in, in the moment that we're in, um, no matter how productive it sounds like on paper, the reality is the prudence of any of those actions rarely outweighs the emotions we're feeling when the relationship is disrupted. So I can tell you till I'm blue in the face, hey, instead of this, do this. And you're going to say, nice. But I think I kind of prefer being in a disrupted relationship than moving towards healing. How then do I enact what I find here in these words of wisdom? The how, friends, has everything to do with the why. There is no how until you get the why. The why you should. The why we're called to it. And that why is summarized very briefly in chapter 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. What's it saying? What forestalls the natural impulses that degrade a relationship when it is ruptured is this thing called forgiveness. The covering of an offense. And why is that done? Because it's what love does. 
Love seeks to cover an offense. That's what love does. That's why we forgive. The covering of an offense, the proof of which is when you cease to keep bringing it up, even after everyone's come to acknowledgement that it was wrong and that it's been forgiven. That's what love does. That's why we stop bringing it up when we're in agreement that this was wrong. And then we've got to move past it if our relationship is ever going to be healed. That's what love does. But therein lies the question, why should I let love prevail? Because it oftentimes feels a lot better to leave it out, to write them off. Paul said, love believes all things. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgives. Love never fails. Why love? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus in and for love goes to a cross that every single one of your sins is covered. Period. That's great news. In Jesus' blood, in and through and for and by love, every single one of your sins is covered. And it is by that same blood that he looks us all in the eyes of our heart and says, I will not bring it up again. That's the gospel. And we should all be on our feet right now. Because that's good news. Because it's covered. And because it will not be repeated. Because that's what love does. But before Jesus even ever walked the earth, before he ever said a word, as we find it in the New Testament, before he ever died on a cross, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, and that Trinity has been eternally a unity in community. Forever loving and serving one another. And that might sound so high and so esoteric, and why would I care? Here's why I'm bringing it up. Because if that kind of love and service to one another is at the very foundation of all things. That it's been there for all time. And that we've seen that love most vividly portrayed in real time in the person of Jesus. Then doesn't it make sense? Isn't it therefore fitting that we might show the love of forgiveness in real time. As the beginning of the healing of a relationship. As the beginning of a process towards reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. But reconciliation will always begin with forgiveness. It's our calling. It's why we do it. It's what love does. It's what he's done for us. And look, you know what? When it comes to forgiveness, this world still loves that idea. In a lot of ways, I know, until you see, you know, the Avengers. The Avengers, get that? Right. Love? No, I'm not doing that. I'll show you, I could show you 10 clips of the way in which forgiveness is still upheld as a virtue. But every single one of those will give you one particular reason why forgiveness is a virtue, and it's this. Because if you don't forgive, the darkness will continue to eclipse the goodness of your own soul. And therefore, you, to move on and to heal, you, you've got to forgive. And you know what? That's absolutely true. Forgiveness is essential to what might happen in your heart. But a lot of times, folks, look, you're prefer- you don't mind being bitter. I-, I-, I dig that more than actually in a healing relationship. And that's why these texts and the gospel itself is offering us something greater than just what it'll do for you.
Why? Why forgive? Why take the steps towards reconciliation in that way? If I could show the clip, I would. It takes too long. But there's a film called Babel, which I recommend with certain qualifications. It's about four stories that seem like they have nothing in common, but they all interlock. But one of those stories is about a married couple played by Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt. And they're on a trip to Morocco. They're married, but they could not be more estranged. And they think that maybe going on a trip will, you know, heal something. But there's a scene when they're on a tour bus in a very dry and arid place in Morocco. And all of a sudden, as they're sitting there, she's next to the window and you're this pop. And she looks down. She's bleeding. She's been shot. They pull the tour bus over into this very primitive dwelling and they don't have a cell phone to call 911 and there is no hospital up the street. And so they're in a, a big tizzy about what to do for her. She's starting to bleed out. They, they, have, nothing to, they have nothing to apply. The, the bus doesn't have anything for them. And, and eventually she begins to really get pale and, and they don't know what they're going to do for her. And, and the tour bus has to go on because everybody on the tour bus is starting to get angry. They, they came to go on vacation. They don't care about this woman. And here in this primitive dwelling... As she starts to get more and more pale, she says to her husband, I got to go to the bathroom. She's too weak to even get up. And in that moment, he cradles her in her arms and grabs a bedpan and helps her to go to the restroom. And in that moment, something happens. And we discover why they're estranged. We hear them tell the story of losing a child to SIDS. And then when that child died, he was so angry at his wife for what he thought was her fault, even though it was never her fault that he ran. And in that moment, he saw a larger moment. He saw the story of their relationship. He saw the story of their marriage in large relief. And in that moment, he acknowledged his error. He asked for her forgiveness. She repeated her belief that she had done nothing wrong. It just happened. It just happens to kids like that. And in that moment, there were tears. And in that moment, there was contrition. And in that moment, there was the asking and the offering of forgiveness. And in that moment, there was intimacy. Because in that moment, they saw their marriage. And how in that marriage, and in that moment, it helped to bring to light what had otherwise obscured their love. Folks, that's, that's the gospel. That's a metaphor of the gospel. When you and I can see our given moment in the wider context of one who died to betroth himself to us in love, then perhaps we will see our relationships in a different light so that we might do what we can to come to an agreement about what's wrong that we might end up finding healing in it. You might say that this whole sermon could be summarized by what it says in Ecclesiastes about to everything there is a season. There is a time to speak there is a time to be silent, to which I might ask you, what time is it for you? Is it time to seek and speak words of forgiveness? Is it time to seek and speak words that might bring out what is between you out in the open, that you might come to an agreement about what that is, that we might move on towards healing? I don't know, but God does and you do too. I do know this. If you're in the Lord, and you're against someone, then you are called to also be for them. If you're in the Lord, and the gospel is your hope, 
But sometimes anybody that you might be for, there may be times where you need to be against them in order to be for them. But whether it's time for you to be for them or against them, what always has to be in the background is the knowledge of this. That he who was for you in his son was for you so that he might not be against you in your sin. And when we believe that, we might be freed up to know what it is to be for someone we're against. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.